Hello, welcome to the WLEI Podcast. I'm executive producer Josh Raposa. So a little over 10 years ago, I'd say, uh, I had the pleasure of meeting Steven Spear. Uh, he came into LEI to give a presentation um, that really spoke to what he later, later published in his book, uh, The High Velocity Edge. His presentation was really so compelling. Um, you know, I, I, I write a lot of notes, um, and you know, when you write a lot of notes, you don't always refer to them, so you could consider them waste. But I actually really grab these notes all the time and take a look at them. They're really haggard now. They're, you know, basically crumpled pieces of paper. But I come back to them and, and really think about the way he describes um, how Toyota works and how they swarm on problems and how they develop problem solvers. It's not even how they solve problems. It's the, the, the capability that they build up in individuals. Um, it's pretty interesting. Uh, and he has uh, just really unique insight. He, he's captured it better than... Um, a lot of others who have tried to, to capture what Toyota does. Uh, very, very interesting. Steve is the author of a few key works to understanding Lean. Uh, there's the Decoding the DNA uh, of the Toyota Processing System and Learning to Lead at Toyota. Uh, both were published in the Harvard Business Review. And then, of course, there's this book that I mentioned previously, The High Velocity Edge. As you'll hear, Steve's work really focuses on how Toyota was one of the few real exceptional organizations that competes on the basis of a management system that optimizes speed, quality, and breadth of problem-solving talent. He coaches these capabilities into organizations ranging from hospitals, industrial companies, to even the U.S. Navy uh, through a company called HVE LLC. And he teaches about them uh, at MIT, where he's a senior lecturer. Interviewing Steve in this podcast is frequent LEI guest and interviewer Eric Pierens, who's the CEO of the Lean Enterprise Institute. Well, you're not here to listen to me, so let's get to the interview. He's all yours, Eric. Hey, Steve. Hey, how are you? Always nice to see you. Always nice to talk to you. You always have interesting things to say. A um, couple of things that are in the news these days that I wanted to kind of get your take on because I have a feeling you've got an interesting take on things. Everybody in the lean community and lots of investors are following the ongoing manufacturing drama at Tesla. Um, been a lot of commentary about it. Bloomberg and the Wall Street Journal. We've written a little bit about it. What do you think? What's your perception of what's going on and what should we think as citizens and as lean thinkers of what Musk is up to? All right, so I think the general conclusion we can draw is if someone makes a promise and they um, struggle to keep it, it's because they're not learning fast enough. And what I mean in particular about this is that um, Tesla has made some really ambitious, audacious promises about its ability or its intent to manufacture and deliver a car which is outstanding in certain ways um, at certain volumes with a certain time. And I think we can give them the benefit of the doubt that they are fully committed to those intents and promises. The fact that they can't keep to those promises means that in terms of um, knowing what to do and how to do it, backed by the requisite skills to act on that know-how, they don't know enough yet. And if they don't know enough yet, it's because uh, their previous experience designing cars, designing systems, implementing systems, hasn't yielded enough new understanding be put into practice. So you use the phrase learning fast enough mm -hmm. and you're the high velocity guy, right? I mean, you wrote a book of, 
called The High Velocity Edge a number of years ago, which was a great book. You think about velocity in a little bit different way than a lot of folks in the lean community. We tend to think of it in sort of narrow terms, reducing lead time, reducing cycle time, et cetera, right? What do you mean by the way you use velocity? And when you say not learning fast enough, talk a little more about that. And how do you start learning faster? Well, let's talk about the importance of learning first, and then we'll talk about okay. learning faster. Fair enough. Right? So um, all of us, regardless of what we do professionally, we start our day with uh, the implication of making promises. And uh, if we're in the pharmaceutical industry, the implied promise we're making is that we're going to do something today that will help you feel better and be better tomorrow. Um, if uh, we work in the insurance industry, um, when we badge into our job, we're in that act, we're implying the process that we're going to do something to help you reduce your risk and the risk of the things that you hold dear. If we're in the healthcare community like you, know, you used to be, when we badge in or show up for our job, we're making some um, implied promise or explicit promise that we're going to somehow provide care, comfort, cure to the things that ail you. Now, each day, I think we all start with uh, the fear that we can't hold to our promises. And the reason we can't hold to our promises, and conversely the reason we can hold to them, is uh, a question of do we or don't we know enough, can we or can't we do enough? And um, those capabilities, you can use the term capability as a shorthand for both knowing what to do, how to do it, and having the skills to act on that, so call it capabilities. Um, Those capabilities are not innate. Um, They have to be discovered. And like anything else that's uh, discovered, um, those capabilities have to be discovered through some kind of learning process. So that's the importance of learning. And if we, you know, we can unpack a little bit more about what we mean by learning, but as the velocity piece comes in, is that uh, if we make promises which today we don't know enough in terms of how to keep them, it means we, you know, again, if we make promises where we don't know enough about how to keep them, it means the only way we can keep those promises is about acquiring those capabilities, discovering what to do, how to do it, and having the skills to do so. And if uh, our intent is to close the gap between what we can do today, which is insufficient, and being capable of um, keeping those processes, uh, I'm sorry, if what we, our intent is to close the gap between um, what we're capable of doing today and actually with high fidelity keeping those promises, then we have to learn our way through that gap. And if we want to close the gap quicker, then we have to learn faster. That's where the velocity comes in, is that the faster we learn, the faster we can converge on to being able to keep our promises each day. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. You've done a lot of work in healthcare. That's how I first met you years ago uh, when you came to visit us at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Um, Boston, of course, is sort of a hotbed of traditional healthcare, big hospitals, academic medicine, etc. But now, in the last couple of weeks, in the news because Boston's own, Harvard's own, Dr. Atul Gawande, who's a pretty prominent figure in the field, 
a popular author, writer for The New Yorker, uh, author of several popular books about healthcare issues. He's just been appointed CEO of this new healthcare venture that doesn't even have a name yet, uh, but the joint venture of Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and Citigroup. I guess he's just started. So, and a lot of speculation in the business press and in the healthcare press about what's he going to do? Um, how's he going to? Expectations are sky high. Uh, how is he and how is the Amazon venture going to shape itself uh, to really have an impact? on the American healthcare landscape. If you had the opportunity to give Dr. Gawande a little advice, what would it be? So I think there are two things that come to mind in terms of um, what else, healthcare. Um, one is integration, and the second is feedback. And what I mean by integration is uh, you think about the problem any organization has. It's um, somehow gaining some harmonious choreography um, over the contributions of many towards some common purpose. And there are a lot of different approaches on how that's been attempted to gain that harmonization towards common purpose. Um, there's been the command control, Tayloristic approaches, there's been more uh, democratic approaches, and we'll get into that when we talk about on the topic of feedback. But one of the things that's really striking about um, healthcare is that how it's um, really defied the tendency in other sectors towards integrating across the multiple specialties necessary to produce value. So I'll give you an example. A bunch of years ago, I was driving down the Hudson River past the uh, Intrepid Air and Space Museum. Sitting on top is the SR-71 Blackbird. So I call it my uncle because uh, when he was a young engineer, he was living out in California with my aunt. And... Uh, working on that program. I said, hey, Uncle Larry, you know, I saw that airplane on which you worked. And he commented, he said, man, that's the best program I was ever part of in my career. Now, putting that in some perspective, his career has spanned 50-some-odd years. When he was working on the SR-71, his responsibilities had to be tiny in comparison to what they matured to as he advanced as an engineer in aerospace. I was trying to think... Um, why it was that was the best program. And, and it struck me that um, here was this fantastic project to build a plane that could fly at altitudes and speeds and so on and so forth that no one had ever done before. And he, as an electrical engineer, was able to contribute to that much larger system, far beyond anything he as an individual could ever conceive of doing. And he started thinking you know, further in terms of how we... Um, train engineers, you know, of course we train them within their specialty of mechanical or software engineering, you know, chemical engineering, whatever else. But it's always, um, or not always, but it's quickly phrased in terms of you're going to master this specialty so that you can contribute something with uh, your colleagues and other specialties toward this much bigger system, the system much bigger than yourself. I think that was what my uncle was expressing. You take a look at healthcare. Um, that's not how we train in healthcare. And you, you had that experience in a teaching hospital where people get trained within disciplines. But um, whereas an engineer from the age of about 1920 is already thinking in terms of uh, cross-disciplinary integrated projects, um, in healthcare we train with uh, greater and greater specialization with very little in the way of um, thinking about 
the processes by which these specialties are brought together into an integrated fashion. So you have just the, even across the, the various uh, specialties, lack of integration. Then, of course, across the different roles, um, you don't have um, a deliberate approach towards integration. And then across the different institutions, be it um, provider, be it ambulatory care, outpatient care, inpatient care, um, insurers and payers and patients and so on and so forth, um, labs, etc. You don't have integrated systems um, of providing care. You have these fragmented systems which are connected through contracting mechanisms which don't necessarily foster virtual integration even in the absence of actual integration. So, so Steve, when you use the term integration, are you talking about simply health systems getting bigger? Because there's a lot of that going on, as we know, right? Big hospitals buy small hospitals and small systems become big systems and where you used yeah. to have five systems, now you're going to have two. And Yeah, so um, my cynical interpretation of that roll-up... All right, so let me, let me explain what I mean by integration and then get back to my cynical view. So... Um, what I mean by integration is that, uh, all right, patient comes in back in the Marcus Welby MD days and may have had one primary point of contact, and that's with the primary care physician. And all those other roles within the medical practice were in support of that moment of connection between the physician and the patient. And, and so that sort of makes sense, right? But as um, medical science and technology have advanced and sort of the bureaucratic demands, administrative demands have increased, a patient doesn't come even for a routine checkup to a primary care physician and have one point of contact. We actually shadowed patients through um, outpatient uh, settings. And it was 12 at a minimum um, between the medical assistants, nurse mm -hmm. practitioners, uh, RNs, uh, administrative staff, the MD, sometimes, sometimes not, uh, um, phlebotomist, so on and so forth. Then if you got a prescription and you had to go see the pharmacist, um, the number of points of contact is, you know, was like a dozen at a minimum. And then you get into actually some sort of serious illness or injury or something that's chronic or congenital. Um, you're talking in the hundreds of points of contact. Now, my observation, again, tying this back to my uncle's experience being part of the design of the SR-71, was that there was the thought that his job as an electrical engineer was subordinate to the system that was going to create this magnificent flying machine. In healthcare, it's less evident that um, people are trained, manage, or think of their role as being subordinate to the system through which the patient is flowing. Instead, what the patient does is almost um, in an a la carte fashion go from one point of contact to the next point of contact to the next point of contact, oftentimes with the integration, the responsibility of the patient, the sense-making, mm -hmm. the holistic mm -hmm. view, the responsibility of the patient. So anyway, in terms of integration, that's what I think of. In terms of creating a system which um, start to finish is oriented around meeting the needs, the care needs of the patient, as opposed to leaving it to the patient to kind of piece the pieces together. Okay, let's hold that thought yeah. and come back to it. Go ahead. Now, in terms of your question about um, this uh, quote-unquote system integration that we see uh, here in Boston and elsewhere, my cynical interpretation, that's uh, just a, 
a desperate attempt through financial mechanisms to create more and more monopoly power. So for example, if you have um, an academic medical center, the big concern there is filling beds. And so if you roll up um, uh, primary care affiliations and community hospital affiliations, then you have funnels into your system. And then once you have those systems, then if you roll up uh, specialties, be it uh, imaging or outpatient specialty care, um, then you have a way to funnel your patients onto the next stages of care. That strikes me as a, an angle towards gaining um, market power over patients, market power over payers. Um, it doesn't strike me as an attempt to gain the critical mass to provide um, to create integrated systems through which you provide holistic care. And, and I guess the, um, the data we could look to is that if I tried to build a car or design an airplane in a fragmented fashion, I would get very poor quality at a very high price. If I had effective integration over the multiple specialties necessary to do either designing or building a car or designing or building an aircraft, what I would expect is a, a much higher quality, better performing product and a much lower cost and greater availability. So here, here's applying that test onto healthcare and this uh, supposed integration. If it really were integration the way you and I care about, integrating so that you can get greater harmonization towards common purpose, we would expect um, better care for more people at lower cost. If on the other hand, the integration is not really integration, but it's just a roll-up for the purpose of expressing market power, what we would expect to see is uh, likely no improvement in quality, maybe no improvement in capacity, but certainly an increase in price. And so we can leave it to um, those folks who look more closely at the healthcare market data as to which form of integration we're actually experiencing. Again, my cynical view is probably the market power integration, not the integration for better performance hmm. uh, type. And what do you mean by feedback? You mentioned that also as another. Yeah. So um, here's the thing. You know, these folks uh, with really um, auspicious endorsement and support, they're trying to, trying to create something different. Now, what that different thing is supposed to do, I don't think anyone really knows yet. And how it's supposed to operate, I don't think anyone knows yet. And for the very simple reason that if people already knew what a superior healthcare service was, and people already knew how to provide that superior healthcare service, they already would be doing it because the market would reward them for that. Be it, you know, the several of us going and as individuals trying to access those systems, our employers trying to access those systems, the government trying to access those systems. I mean, there's certainly enough interested parties out there that would like uh, better care for more people at lower cost than we currently experience. So by the sheer fact that that's not available suggests that um, people don't know how to do it. So anyway, this is where feedback comes in, which is, um, you know, no doubt there's going to be some attempt to uh, brainstorm, ideate, et cetera, whatever those fancy terms are for creating a vision. Uh, there's going to be some attempt at that. 
But the other thing we can be sure about is whatever version v.1 is, is going to be wrong. Um, it can't possibly be right because we know that uh, we only learn by taking our ideas, exposing them to the test of practice or practical, you know, or um, virtual practice or pilot practice, right? But it's, it's only by taking our ideas and exposing them to refutation that we see what's wrong with our, with our ideas. And it's through that feedback it triggers us to try something different. So um, there can be a lot of attempt to uh, get people in a, in a room with all the accoutrements of uh, ideation, hackathon, etc., to come up with um, ideas. But for sure, uh, the first version will be uh, grossly flawed. And it's only by exposing those uh, ideas to feedback, be it virtual mm -hmm. or actual, will they be able to iteratively converge on the right ideas. So Dr. Gawande has the benefit of three prominent investors backed with essentially unlimited resources. Uh, I think they're going to use a, their own employees as pilot patients. That's a million 200,000, pretty healthy number for a pilot. Um, and I agree with you, probably not much real idea about how to shape the enterprise and the necessity to iterate. Any bright ideas about where to begin? Yeah, if you've got, what'd you say, about a million? About a million too, I think. Yeah, I'd start with 20. <laughs> and, and it gets back to this, right? So, uh, you know, the basic premise of why we talk in terms of learning and learning it with uh, high velocity is that um, no matter what scheme they construct, it's got to be wrong in some important way. And so if uh, the issue is the way to go from a scheme which is wrong in some important ways to a scheme which is right in the uh, really fundamental ways, you've got to get yourself some learning cycles. And uh, the thing about learning cycles, particularly when they involve people, is that you've got to coordinate across the participants to uh, test your ideas. So if you want to start, um, if you start with uh, 20 people, 30 people, 50 people, well, that's a certain number of people you can fit in a room, you can have a conversation, you can share your basic thinking, bat around ideas, listen to objections, so on and so forth. Um, and you can iterate fairly quickly with uh, when your numbers are in the handfuls and, or the dozens. When your um, starting number is in the uh, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, it's very, very hard to get any kind of meaningful cycle time compression on your learning cycles. And so uh, then you're either going to move very slowly and maybe find your way to the right answer. but more likely than not, you'll get so many people ticked off and jaded by their experience with version one that they won't give you the liberty or the license to get onto versions three, four, and 100. So mm -hmm. um, anyway, that's tied into the feedback thing. Mm -hmm. And l let me just offer this is that, um, yeah. and again, I, I can't speak for what they have in mind. But oftentimes you get the feedback from people say, oh, no, I have such a huge organization and such compelling problems that um, I can't afford to start small. I have to start big. But again, it gets back to the, the nature of any learning situation. Um, 
If you start big, you have to master a whole lot of complexity simultaneously, and you greatly increase the uh, likelihood that you're going to fail. And when you fail, you may have a great time, a great deal of difficulty recovering from that failure. On the other hand, if you start small um, and have a solid foundation and then grow exponentially off that solid foundation, it, it, it's like basic math, right? Which is, um, if I start with one or I start with two, but I'm doubling each cycle, it doesn't matter whether I started with one or two, it's only one more cycle. And if the cycles are fast enough, you know, I, I grow to a very large number quickly. And, it, you know, maybe it's one extra cycle because I started with one versus two. But if I start with four and four um, doesn't allow me to grow exponentially, so what? I got, I got a little head start, but I got a head start towards failure, not towards success. So, you know, long and short, if they're going to do something, you know, yeah, spend some time generating clever ideas, but pick some small pilot to find out what's wrong with their ideas so they can refine them quickly. It's why the genetic scientists use fruit flies, right? You can raise a lot of generations in a few weeks. Yeah, that's right. Or, uh, you know, over the last couple of years, I've had the good fortune to work with folks in um, pharma around drug development. And, you know, you start thinking about the scale at which they work. So uh, they scale the maturity of their you know, or where they are in the pipeline by the size, the amount of stuff they have to make. So to be at commercial levels, I think the, the standard is you have to be at megagrams to meet commercial need. To be in the clinical setting, you have to be at kilograms. To be uh, getting ready um, for the uh, clinical setting, you have to be at the gram level. But when you're start, first starting out trying to refine your ideas, you're at the microgram level. And, and the reason you want to operate at the microgram level is that the microgram level allows you to um, cycle through mistakes very, very quickly at very low cost and try something and then understand um, not only that it failed, but give yourself the latitude to figure out why it failed. And so why? You're at the microgram level. So how much um, time and money have you really burnt? To be wrong on a microgram. On the other hand, if you try and uh, start at the gram or the kilogram level, um, you may burn through your resources before you actually ever get to the right answer. Mm -hmm. right. Let's shift gears for a second from human health and pharma to the animal kingdom. You, you did a little work a while ago with a zoo. Yeah. Tell me about that. Would you? What did you learn, and what did they learn from you? And how does lean thinking and practice inform? management of a zoo. Yes, yeah, so um, let me just give out a screaming endorsement to the Franklin Park Zoo as a tremendous, tremendous uh, resource here in the greater Boston community. It's a wonderful place to bring a family. It's uh, an absolutely uh, wonderful um, staff who are committed both to the visitors and to the well-being of the animals. And uh, it's one of those things you discover that when you get behind the scenes to see how you take care of uh, hyenas and zebras and that sort of thing, that um, anything that in life appears simple is a, appears simple only because you don't really understand the complexity behind it. And uh, it turns out that um, taking care of you know, wild animals, even just basic things like feeding them is, is crazy complex. Like who knew how many different types of hay exist and who knew um, the uh, 
delicacy with which you have to handle your um, hay supplies so that uh, you don't inadvertently take expensive food grade hay and turn it into bedding grade hay. And so um, as far as the, uh, the folks at the Franklin Park Zoo, um, what they, you know, they're in a situation where ideally their animals are getting outstanding care and they live long, healthy lives, that their visitors are having absolutely fantastic experience, but all, of course, within the constraints of what the um, public can afford or is willing to pay for the sustenance of the zoo. So this issue of um, delivering uh, more and more value with less and less um, burning of resources and less and less exertion is, is a very real problem. And so it gets back to our learning problem again, right? Which is, um, why is it that uh, you can't provide the level of um, stewardship to the animals and the level of experience to um, visitors that you'd like to, given the resources you have available? And the shorter answer is because you don't know how to. Um, you know, if you knew how to, you would. And if you can't, it's because you don't know how. So the folks at the zoo um, started uh, saying what we need to do is um, learn better faster. So whatever we're doing, we have to build into our dynamic uh, an opportunity to ask the question, well, what was difficult about that? Um, you know, how did we um, compromise the interests of some stakeholder? And it might be a billy goat for that matter, right? But how do we compromise the... Uh, the well-being of some stakeholder, what was it we didn't understand that led to that compromise and what can we do differently so next cycle through um, we can better meet the uh, needs of all our stakeholders. And those stakeholders include the visitor, visitors for sure. It certainly includes the animals, but the staff. You know, look, taking care of wild animals is um, wickedly dangerous. I didn't realize how angry zebras are. I guess, you know, in hindsight, it's one of those things when you realize that zebras, uh, their natural environment is... Uh, trying to coexist with lions, yeah, you probably have an attitude problem. Um, but, uh, you know, so you have to be careful about how you handle zebras. You have to be careful because the food for zebras and all these other animals is uh, heavy. And so you want to uh, avoid risks of, you know, injuries related to lifting and putting down heavy things. So anyway, that's where the zoo came in, is um, better meeting their social mandate without uh, consuming more resources. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. Go Zoo. <laughs> <laughs> You're a fan. I'm a fan. Um, oh, actually, I have a funny learning story about the zoo. Let's hear so, it. Uh, every year, the uh, Boston Athletic Association, uh, BAA, um, runs a series of races. You know, you got the 5K, 10K marathon, but also a half marathon. It starts and finishes at Franklin Park. And uh, the last couple of miles... You cut through the zoo at like, well, depending on how fast you are, it's either 8, 9, or 10 in the morning on a, on a, the Sunday before Columbus Day. So in terms of learning, um, what no one had really thought ahead of one time is that if you run a bunch of, and this is thousands of people, if you run a bunch of, you know, thousands of sweaty, heavy-breathing mammals past the hyenas, or the wild, I think it was the wild dogs, they will go insane. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like putting me in front of a breakfast buffet and saying, "No, you, you can't touch." So uh, one of the things they learned from that experience is on the day of the half marathon, make sure that the wild dogs are tucked away and unaware of the runners going by, so you don't have the the animals rioting for breakfast. 
So sounds like a valuable learning. Va valuable learning for all you know, all the stakeholders. You know, particularly for someone like myself, who's uh, definitely the the slow, weak, sick part of the pack. Yeah, you don't right? want to yeah. be at the back of the boat. No, no, no. Right? no. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can see the animal saying, "Hey, let's wait till next yeah. year when Spear comes by, because that'll be an easy one." So, Steve, uh, you're an academic. Uh, you were at Harvard Business School. You're teaching now at the Sloan School of Management. You write books and articles. Uh, if our listeners haven't read your HBR article called uh, Decoding the DNA of the Toyota Production System, stop the podcast, go get the article and read it, and then resume the podcast. Yep. Um, wonderful article. And don't forget the book. The book, the high velocity edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that, by all, by all means. Yeah. yeah. So ag actually, so you know, that's a product placement. So uh, you know, if we had a video, I'd be holding up a copy. But um, more to the point is, um, let, let, let me just tie into that. So uh, you know, the um, that article from Harvard Business Review back in 1999, decoding the DNA of the Toyota production system, grew out of my um, research towards my dissertation, and what motivated that research was. Um, here you had Toyota, demonstratively the most successful auto company in the world, setting the standard in terms of its ability to uh, generate and deliver value with much greater ease than anybody else. So in terms of uh, quality, affordability, reliability, introduction of new technology like hybridization, um, uh, compressed cycle times in terms of major model upgrades, Toyota was setting the standard on virtually every important um, metric or dimension in that industry and uh, we were trying to understand why um, despite good intent and effort there was no second Toyota and what we realized is that um, people thought Toyota had better control over otherwise um, chaotic systems and so that the solution was uh, adopting production control tools that Toyota had developed and popularized and in our first article, what we realized is like, yeah, that's important. But what's really fundamentally important is around learning is that Toyota had figured out how to convert its workforce into a community of scientists. That ideally, every action everyone took all the time was structured as an experiment from which you either succeeded as you intended or you got feedback to tell you that you were wrong I needed to come up with a different way or, a, you know, first understand why you were wrong, but then come up with a, a different way to pilot and try so that you were getting better and better all the time. And the reason I um, offer folks to uh, look to the book is that, um, so we wrote this article in 99. This is Kent Bowen, who is my advisor and mentor when I was doing my um, doctoral work. And over the years, again, I guess it's sort of keeping with what, practicing what we were preaching. What we found is that there were ways to um, refine, simplify, but make more powerful our description of this uh, management system which fostered this incredible pace, breadth, and consistency of learning. And so whereas in the uh, article we focused very much on the design of processes that uh, generated feedback to trigger problem solving, by the time we got to writing the book and releasing it in 2010, we had had a chance to take these ideas and test them over a much broader range of application than just um, 
industrial manufacturing. We looked at design, services, and so on and so forth. But also we expanded the um, explanation of the learning dynamic from the design of processes to the management of problem solving through the um, sharing of knowledge and, and then ultimately um, what leaders have to do and how they have to position themselves to foster this uh, relentless aggressive learning dynamic. So you know, I really do appreciate when people come to me and say, oh, I read your article. So, yeah, it's almost 20 years ago. The book's a little more recent and um, a little more complete mm-hmm. in its um, explanation. I mean, what we can do actually is when we're done with this is uh, I can give you some excerpts and if people want to download it off your website or whatnot yeah. to get a taste of Terrific. things Good. that are more current. We'd love to do that. Yep. But why aren't there hundreds of Steve Spears pouring out of American business schools? <laughs> Uh, well, I think and my, where's the next generation of young scholars who have learned the secret sauce of the Toyota production system and are bringing that knowledge into American manufacturing and services and saying, wait a minute, the way for us to generate better outcomes for our enterprises and for our communities is not through uh, rolling up enterprises to eliminate competition. It's not through financial engineering and sleight of hand. It's through turning our enterprises into value creation, scientific experiment laboratories that engage the front line. We know how to do this. Toyota's been at it for a long time. Right. So um, I think there are a couple of impediments as to why this hasn't mainstreamed into the, uh, the business school curriculum. I think the common the common theme is that we haven't converted practice into sound theory. I mean, actually, I'd have to say that Kent Bowen and I worked very hard to do that, but I'd say as an academic community, well, I, I don't even rephrase it anymore. I think Kent Bowen and I worked very hard to come up with um, uh, a simple theory to explain a complex phenomenon, the complex phenomenon being the ability of Toyota and others to generate outlandish amounts of value with um, really um, conservative amounts of effort relative to what was typical. And I think you know, we explained that in terms of um, managing these complex work systems to generate feedback that triggers uh, recognition and then resolution of problems. Now, um, now here, here's the thing. There are folks who um, have been responsible, much like you are, uh, in healthcare, for the management of these very complex systems, and um, you learn what Toyota has done, and typically expressed through the you know different tools and practices and this and that, and you realize, wait a second, I can not only apply that, but I can extrapolate those things because I realize that underneath that tool is uh, some important principle, some sort of like basic thinking, and that so individually you and folks like you were able to extract the basic thinking, apply it into practice, and go from there. Um, But for the academics, I don't know if um, most of them ever individually took the time to find that basic thinking on their own. And and of course, that makes sense, right? Because they were engaged in finding the basic thinking on some other phenomena, not Toyota necessarily. But um, because they weren't looking for the basic thinking 
kind of first principles, like a force on a mass will cause it to accelerate. And out of that, you get all this marvelous uh, structural and mechanical engineering. You know, one statement is the basis of entire professions. Um, in the absence of that, um, the academic community then views Toyota as uh, the source of a lot of production control tools, um, be it Kanban cards or Hey Junka boxes, so on and so forth. And um, they don't make the effort to extract the basic thinking. And so when it comes time to teach this into to all right, so anyway, that, that's a point, right? They they don't have simple basic thinking sound theory to explain Toyota. Now you think about what academics do is that they try to discover and then um, express basic thinking. So in finance, for example, finance is fairly simple, right? There's three rules they worry about, right? When do I get paid, time, value, money? When do I get to decide something? Um, that's option, the basis of option theory. And uh, how well do I diversify my risk? Those three things. Now you take that, attach it onto mathematical equations, and uh, put those equations in, into uh, models which can run be run off computers. You can get some very very sophisticated uh, financial models. And, and similarly, if you start going through the um, business school curriculum, that's the basis of the entire derivatives industry, for instance. Th that's right. Yeah, <laughs> right. no, that's that's right. The derivatives industry, arbitrage, uh, all this intermarket trading, flash trading, et cetera, et cetera, all depends on the fact that finance is only three principles. And, and again, that's not to be derisive uh, towards um, finance because mechanic, um, you know, our construction and industry depends on only two or three basic principles. You know, something about mechanics and the motion of objects or the stationary, you know, keeping objects stationary for a building. Um, something about heat transfer, a little bit about plumbing and pressure and that kind of thing. And out of that, you can get, um, you know, giant skyscrapers and so on and so forth, or airplanes for that matter. So then you have, um, so you have um, the the education sector, which uh, tries to find a theory to explain something, and then teaches the theory and its application. And then you get um, them looking into industry uh, and Toyota and saying, well, what's the theory there? But we, we, we haven't, you know, we collectively, those of us who practice these things, um, haven't necessarily made an attempt to explain to the academic community the theory. You know, and again, coming back to what we we're discussing today, the theory really is performance reflects capability, which uh, is the derivative. Uh, the derivative is actually the um, the accumulation of learning, the result of learning. And there's ways to set yourself up to learn faster or slower. So anyway, then you have this academic community with which um, absent an understanding of the theory then sees tools, and um, schools of higher education don't teach tools. That's a skilled trade problem and a vocational training problem, but it's not a higher education problem. We probably ought to wind this up shortly, but before we do, since you're always an interesting and thoughtful guy, what's top of mind for you? What interesting problems are out there that you're trying to learn about? Last time I saw you, you gave a little talk here uh, that riffed off military history. Yep. So what else is rattling around? Yeah, so uh, there are a lot of problems our society has. 
None of them are due to material scarcity. We have more food than we can possibly eat in any kind of healthy fashion. We have more material and the ability to create more physical product um, than we can possibly consume and dispose of safely. <clears throat> it's kind of an interesting point, right? Because most of human experience, right? The vast majority of anyone who's ever lived on this planet, their problems were scarcity. And our problems are abundance. Global warming, why? Too much fuel. Pollution, why? Too much material. Um, debris, too much stuff. Uh, those uh, islands of floating plastic in the Pacific or wherever they have any, why? Too much stuff. Obesity, too much food. Right? Our, our problems are ones of uh, surplus, not scarcity. But we, say, all right, but we still have problems, right? We still have people who don't get adequate care. We still have people who sleep outside at night because uh, they don't have someplace uh, warm and dry and safe uh, to be inside. Um, so the problems in our society, though, can't possibly be due to scarcity across our society and our communities. It, it's about our inability to bring those resources um, and those services to people who need them most. And so if we have more than enough inputs, but we're inadequate in terms of our outputs, the gap has to be because we don't understand how to effectively convert those things that um, we have available to us to things that people actually need and, and, and want to use. So uh, this issue of more and more managing what we do um, with newfound understanding is the immediate output of our activities so that um, we can better and better create value with less and less effort. That's a, a common challenge. And the, the more you look, um, uh, social need, commercial need, political need, um, it's because it, it keeps coming back to we simply don't know enough to do what we need to do. And uh, that's why we run into uh, difficulty. Uh, that's what worries me. Can we teach enough people to learn well enough, fast enough, often enough to address the problems that we face. Steve Spear, you always keep the focus on learning. Thanks for coming in to talk to me today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Eric. Thanks, Steve. You can hear more from Steven Spear at the 2018 Northeast Lean Conference this October 10 and 11 in Providence, Rhode Island. There, Steve will be sharing on the main stage many uh, more uh, great observations and teachings. Uh, the event is produced by our good friends at GBMP. As always, if you have any feedback on the podcast, show ideas, or questions you'd like to see asked to a Lean Thought leader, please send them to pod at lean.org. Once again, that's pod at lean.org. Pod at lean.org. Thanks for listening.